We are in a revolution. But it is a revolution in which the side that fires the first shot loses. We will not fire any shots because our weapon is uncommon good sense. Hello and welcome to Tractor Time. Tractor Time is brought to you by Acres USA, the voice of eco-agriculture. I'm your host, Ben Trollinger, editor of Acres USA magazine. And today on the show, Rebecca Burgess. She's the co-author of a new book called Fiber Shed, growing a movement of farmers, fashion activists, and makers for a new textile economy. Her previous book was Harvesting Color, How to Find Plants and Make Natural Dyes. If you listen to Tractor Time on a regular basis, then you likely care about where your food comes from. But if you're like me, clothing doesn't always get the same consideration. We often talk about farm to table, but not so much farm to closet. All of us buy clothing. We buy for comfort, for style, for status. We all have the brands we stick with. And yes, sometimes we'll spend a little extra for a garment made of something we feel virtuous about. An organic cotton t-shirt, maybe, or a merino wool sweater. But mainly, we look for things that look good, won't wear out too quickly, and protect us from the elements. But what is this often opaque global supply chain of fast fashion really doing to our world and to us? What Rebecca describes in this interview is truly stunning. It might just change the way you think about clothing forever. As you listen to this interview, I suggest you do some laundry, fold some clothes, or at least take a look in your closet. Are you as conscientious about your clothing as you are about your food? In this conversation, Rebecca opens up her closet, somewhat literally to us, and shines a bright light on a system that takes an enormous toll on our environment. Rebecca isn't just exposing a broken system, however. She has a bold and hopeful vision for what a regenerative clothing system could look like. And it isn't just about persuading big clothing brands to do the right thing. Her fiber shed movement is well underway with more than 50 communities already participating. Rebecca is the executive director of Fibershed. You can find out more about that at fibershed.org. Rebecca is also the chairwoman of the board for the Carbon Cycle Institute, and she's a skilled weaver and maker of natural dyes. I'm thrilled to have her with us today. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. It's really nice to be here. What do most people not know about the clothing hanging in their closet? Well, commonly, people are not necessarily connecting the clothing to agriculture. Some are, but many are not. And I would say your wardrobe is, or your closet and your drawers, chest of drawers, wherever you're placing your clothing is has as much connection to the land base as the food in your refrigerator and your cupboard. And that connection to land could look like an act of agriculture. It could also look like mining for cobalt and cadmium. It could also look like mining for fossil fuels, um, which by weight, fossil carbon for plastic clothing makes up about 70% of the weight of our wardrobes. So while I'd like to say that most of our wardrobes are made up of the products of tending the biosphere and the pedosphere, the soil carbon pool, <laughs> not very much of the clothing we wear actually is from, from, that, uh, from those carbon pools. It's actually deeper down in the Earth's core 
and it's acrylic, um, nylon, polyester, capilene, um, that is, it's the foundation of those fossil carbon wardrobe items that you see so many people wearing for athletic, um, events or, Mm -hmm. um, just, you know, modern performance wear. So, yeah, I think we don't often think about which carbon pool I would say most people aren't thinking like, Oh, where, where in the earth or on the earth did this come from? And what was its contribution to moving carbon into the atmosphere? What was its contribution to moving carbon down into the soil? Those are fundamentally critical questions for our kind of existential moment with climate change. And I think people are often probably most commonly not thinking about those things. (laughs) Right. And you say in the book that people should be just as demanding about where their clothing comes from as they are uh, about where their food comes from. But why has clothing been largely left out of the farm to table conversation? Well, I think perishability is one, um, one piece of it. We've been able to make the supply chains for textiles very opaque um, due to the fact that the cotton and the wool and even the natural fibers that we wear can technically be shipped without refrigeration all over the world. And you can have one person doing one little thing and then ship it 5,000 miles to get to the next cheapest labor source on you know, subsidized fossil carbon fuels and move these materials around to so many locales that you know, people get, I think their brains a bit scrambled trying to track some of these supply chain inputs. And then how we see farm to fork or the far- slow food movement is very connected to physical health. And people are very, um, you know, particularly mothers driving like the anti-GMO movement in many cases, not wanting to feed their children certain things, feeling like they need to protect their families from these trespassers of pesticides and herbicides and the toxicity that can get into food from processed foods that have opaque supply chains. Those uh, processed food and GMO items are, are archly defended out of many kitchens um, and homes by by mothers and and very clear you know fa- not just the mom but the whole family but I have seen like in our community moms against GMOs and I'm thinking this woman who's at this rally she's um, she's wearing a GMO cotton t-shirt and it's just the irony has been a little too much for me over time and so I really felt the importance of writing this book because you know Monsanto and now Bayer they got into the recombinant DNA conversation, economically speaking, by taking over commodities, and it was cotton. You know, cotton, it was the starting point. And soy and corn, you know, on the heels of that. But I feel like the consolidation of wealth and power in agribusiness has always been centered around cotton. So I think it's just, it's, it's interesting that it doesn't really get the attention, yet it's our second skin, it's our first form of shelter. But I don't know if people understand the connection to their personal health. You know, that could be it. Well, I think that would be a great entry point. Um, let's talk about cotton. It, it conjures up these images and it has these powerful associations with comfort. Um, you, I think you called it a second skin, but the hidden costs of cotton are enormous. Well, cotton in the United States, um, prior to the ban of DDT, it was one of those crops that was very vulnerable to lagus and bullworm and um, various kinds of bullworm. And so it's consistently, if you start growing a monoculture at scale and you don't diversify the, the crops within the field, 
you know, you don't put in a, a beneficial insectary for beneficial insects, or you don't give the, the lagus a place to go, and it's just got the cotton to munch on. These insects become, the pressure that, that cotton faces from, from pests is heavy. If you don't understand how to run an agricultural system with the insectaries that some farmers in indigenous communities and today in modern agriculture are doing, but the, the pest pressure has brought on like historically DDT, metallothion, aldicarb. Those are banned now in the U.S. For, for cotton systems, at least in California, I know that those, those chemicals are banned. But historically, it's just a plant that has received pest pressure. And so farmers are consistently looking for ways to protect their yield. So it does bring on the synthetic chemistry, <clears throat> unfortunately. The water usage I know it's interesting. Cotton is typically demonized for water usage. And it does, if you look at the whole growing cycle of cotton, it absolutely, it's in the field from the last frost date in the spring to, you know, October, November. It takes quite a bit of time for that plant to mature and produce a cotton bowl. So over that duration of time, you know, you are watering, but the cotton farmer that we work with in um, Kern County, I said, you know, how many times a month are you watering that crop and he said once twice <laughs> mm-hmm. you know like it was not a and when I go onto like the cotton ginners association in my community's website you know they're saying yes it does take a lot of water if you amortize the amount of water you're using over the weight of cotton yielded it looks like cotton takes a lot of water because cotton is very lightweight so a pound of cotton doesn't, you know, it looks like it's absorbing quite a bit of that, of that water. Anyway, it, does, it doesn't quite, the math always makes cotton look very <laughs> poor in terms of water uptake and utilization. Right. Yet it's not as, it just depends on who's growing it and what soil type. I think that's really important. I don't feel it's important or don't feel it's a value for this conversation, um, especially if those who are listening are in agriculture, you, you know, if, depending on how much carbon is in your soil and how you're tilling or not tilling, you can really modify and improve how you're using your irrigation system. And cotton is very, I would say, dynamic in that way. There's all kinds of people working on all kinds of amazing efficiencies. But historically, it gets a bad rap for water utilization. Um, but the, the insecticides are real. Well, one thing that surprised me in reading the book was that 80% of the cotton grown in the U.S. is genetically modified, which means it can withstand large amounts of herbicides and pesticides, and that only 1% of the cotton grown in the U.S. was certified organic. Why is that? Why hasn't certified organic cotton caught on in the U.S.? Well, organic cotton, certified organic cotton, means that at the end of the season, if you live in a climate that does not freeze, you need if you're not, if you're going to mechanically harvest, so in in the Western Hemisphere, um, well, I'll say in the U.S., we are mechanically harvesting um, a lot of what we grow. I do not know of a farm in the United States. I'd love it if someone could correct me on this, but I have not seen a farm where they're in today's U.S. Har- hand harvesting. Our history with hand harvesting is tied to slavery. So cotton, starting in the U.S., we increased and heightened the slave trade over that crop. Because at that time, we obviously didn't have defoliants. And so hand harvesting was the way to keep the cotton clean. And organic cotton to this day is hand harvested because you, if you mechanically are harvesting, or even in some cases hand harvesting, you, and you're in a climate that does not defoliate the plant naturally, you know, um, 
you really do need the hands of a human to carefully get that bowl off the plant and into a vessel without all the other uh, vegetable matter. And so organic cotton really still, if, you know, because it doesn't allow the defoliant, which I'm grateful for, does not allow the Roundup to be used at the end of the season. You do need a way to harvest that and you get organic cotton that it, it's just it's trickier to to get that cotton into your into your harvester without collecting a lot of vegetable matter if you're not using a defoliant. Mm-hmm. And um, I think so. There's some technical reasons, and it's a lot of it's defoliation centered conversations. And I also think that um, and and because the U.S. is not using humans to hand harvest cotton because we have stricter labor laws and wages wage law, so we can't. Like the the co- we could not compete on a global market and hand harvest cotton in the U.S. Where is the world's supply of organic cotton being grown? India, Turkey, they say China. I, <laughs> I, I, I know a lot of the Chinese cotton comes from uh, the Uyghur uh, community that is interned, the Muslim community in China, they're right. out there hand picking. There's been a lot of expose on that. 60% apparently of Chinese cotton is from that region. So yes, it might be organic, but it's also being harvested by interned indentured servants, which is, I would say, I would argue very problematic, as problematic as insecticides. So yeah, I, that's, there are countries where you've got a pool of labor that will hand harvest or the government like in the, I think it's Uzbekistan, will forcibly require people to even leave government jobs and get out into the field and harvest. I don't know if that's still happening. I know that there was an uproar about it, but there are places in the world where every during harvest, everybody gets in the field. And we just don't have that in the U.S., right? We have laws protecting children from working in fields. We have laws protecting people um, from being forced out of other work into the fields, you know, we have those protections keep us from replicating those situations you see in other countries. Now, I will say fair trade organic cotton does come from these same countries as well. I would definitely say in India and Turkey. So it's not that all organic cotton has labor problems. It's just that it is prone to that, but it's not in all cases. Most certainly, I know some wonderful farmers in India growing organic cotton with wonderful, um, wonderful support of the community that works on those on those projects. Right, I think that'll surprise a lot of people that you know who are looking at labels who care about that, and they see organic cotton and they think, "Okay, I'm good. I can feel mm-hmm. good about this purchase." But as you say, as you're saying now, and as you detail in the book, labor practices are really a huge part of this equation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and. You know, I also write in the book that the U.S. spends more on synthetic chemical input than it does on human labor. So our our answer to competing globally with the human labor, in many cases, abuses that occur overseas in the cotton fields is to use chemistry, which puts our rural communities' health at risk, our aquifers at risk, our marine ecosystems at risk, our air in turmoil, our bodies in turmoil. It consolidates wealth and power in the agribusiness industry. So our answer to stricter labor laws is not always pretty either. So right. <laughs> I don't know if there's a perfect answer here, except that, you know, cotton is probably a crop that needs a lot of, I would say, a, an approach by, you know, appropriate technologists. You know, how are we going to harvest cotton without using Roundup as a defoliant? 
how are we going to interplant cotton with really important insectary species that allow us to still harvest the cotton and not the other species? You know, there, there are answers to all of this, but our think tanks, we've really relinquished responsibility and control over appropriate technology in this sector. There really isn't a lot of appropriate technology. There's technology that just continues to increase yield, but it doesn't necessarily increase the um, relationship or efficacy of those who want to live in a rural community and not be exposed to these chemicals. The technology is not focused on that. The technology is not focused on uh, democratized seed banks. <laughs> right. Well, you've touched on this, but I, I, I would really like if you could go deeper into some of the environmental consequences that result from our reliance on fast fast fashion and things like that. How, how destructive is the fashion industry on a global scale? Well, the data that has not been, you know, the, no one has kicked the tires to the point of flattening them in this factoid I'm about to share. So I feel comfortable sharing it. Um, they say about every two seconds, a dump truck load of textiles is incinerated or thrown into a landfill every yeah one to two seconds, that pulse of waste. There are still to this day, um, like I said in, earlier in the conversation, you know, the exacerbation of climate causing lithosphere-based carbon mining occurring for 70% of the textiles we're wearing. And the same stuff we're heating, you know, natural the natural gas that's running the stove or the, the heating the house, you know, all, all of these places where we're digging to get these energy sources. It's also where we're digging to get our clothes. It's also where we're digging to get our dyes. The dyes are fossil carbon-based. There's an incredible amount of cyanide in a pound of synthetic blue dye. It's like four ounces of cyanide in a pound of blue dye. So if it's not a plant-based indigo dye and it is a synthetic blue, it relies heavily on poison. Uh, and that's across the scale for, for synthetic dyes. There's heavy metals in, in those dyes and that have fossil carbon-based molecular structures. So your, your focus um, on you know, color is coming from a mind process. So between the, the overproduction, fast fashion has, you know, we're, we're seeing about, we're seeing that we're, we're keeping our clothes half as long since about the year 2000. And that's not all of us, probably many people listening are not doing this with their textiles. But there's a really increased turnover rate since about 2000, 2002, when the first fast fashion company started to make strides. They're a Swedish company called H&M. And that's when we started to see like a t-shirt for $3, you know, and this t-shirt's like, how would you do that? Oh, well, you put, you know, 20% cotton in it. So it kind of feels like cotton and 80% acrylic. So they cheapened the textiles by blending plastic in with the natural fiber, creating one of the worst ecological catastrophes that we are still completely not able to dig ourselves out of, which is clothes that cannot be recycled because they're not 100% plastic and they cannot, be bio, they cannot biodegrade because there's plastic in them. Mm -hmm. So it's this blending process. And I know that these fast fashion companies are working on proprietary technologies to shred and sort and magnetize the plastic out. And none of it, none of those technologies are at all scalable at this moment in time. And none of those technologies are affordable. So less than 1% of our textiles are turning into more textile, which is absurd because these textiles have the ability to technically be recycled, but because everyone has wanted to lower the prices, They've created these cheap blends 
and the blends are, like I say, just a complete disaster for marine ecosystems, for our recyclability capabilities, for it, they don't end up in the compost pile. And so, yeah, it's incineration or landfill at one to two dump truck loads every one to two seconds. Yeah, and, and globally, there are some very good, like River Blue is a very good documentary that discusses the world's rivers and how they have been impacted by synthetic dyes. I highly recommend people check out River Blue. And in general, just the industry left the United States so it did not have to treat dye affluent. You know, once you put really toxic molecule in water, it disperses and nature doesn't just go and find a way to collect it itself. Once the cat's out of the bag, it's out of the bag. And the chemicals that we're using in finishing agents to make the clothing wrinkle-free or stain-proof or water-repellent, those finishing agents, like here's an example of one, the water repellency that we use so we can be outside in the rain and you know stay dry, um, the chemistry behind that is a perofluorinated carbon. And they have found this molecule in the livers of polar bears and the penguins in Tierra del Fuego. Like this is a bioaccumulating molecule. Um, the chlorine-fluorine bond is so tight and cannot be broken down. And that's why it's a water repellent, right? It, it can resist everything. So in this desire to make clothing that is so strong and performs so well, we are destroying our biosphere because we are wanting things to last forever. And that's kind of the the crazy dream of plastic. Like we will create a material culture that is here forever and it lasts. And it's like, yeah, well actually some things you don't want to last that long. Right, I mean, I think that was one of the things that really um, was enlightening for me in, in reading the book is that, you know, when you're making a purchase, you feel like you're doing the right thing if you buy something that is built to last, but that's not, that, that isn't always the case. And that's not necessarily the right vision to have for a sustainable clothing system. Correct. You want your clothes to be able to be cut up and put in your compost pile. Once you have attempted to mend them repeatedly, you know, they're too tattered. You can't, you don't have, maybe in some cases, you just don't even know how to mend them to the degree that they require. They should be cut into smaller pieces and become microbe food in your compost pile. That's historically for millennia how people handled their wool and linen, hemp, rami, pineapple, coconut, whatever fiber they were wearing, you know, it just went back to the earth. And there was no, there was just, it wasn't a big corporate social responsibility move. It wasn't a big hoo-ha. It didn't need a bunch of Instagram ads, compost your clothes, follow us. It's just like, that's what we did. So yeah, I, I think the the industrial chemistry giants, <laughs> DuPont and others, right. have have really sold people on that idea of yeah, built built to last applies to some things in your material cultural economy, but it should definitely not apply to all things. So right. like they say, things that need to be more complicated, let them be complicated and do not oversimplify things that need to be complicated. And I think we have, yeah, we've allowed some of this conversation about textiles to kind of get collapsed into a bigger rhetoric. Um, and we've lost sight of what the textile itself is, the what that particular material culture conversation needs to look like. So we've talked about the pitfalls of cotton, of 
oil-based garments. What about synthetic biology? That's being touted as a savior of the fashion industry, but there are issues with that, as you detail in the book. Well, we currently have under, actually it was under the Obama administration, I think in 2012, they, they issued something called the Blueprint for the Bioeconomy. And, you know, it has to happen in a society designed based on growth, which is what we've unfortunately um, all decided, not all of us, but, you know, institutions that be have hung their hat on, that we just have to keep growing this economy and grow, grow, grow. So in 2012, you know, where's the next domain? We have mined the oceans, we have mined the soils, we have mined many aspects of the earth's body for finite metals. What is the next frontier? We have, you know, covered the earth with human bodies and human communities. What next? So the idea was that we could create biological factories and material culture could be reinstituted into fermentation tanks. So instead of heat, beat, and treat manufacturing that we've become so accustomed to for our material systems, we can actually, at room temperature, we can, we can recreate E. coli and yeast and take base life forms that exist in the in the ecosystem, we can take those base life forms and we can insert the DNA of a spider inside the yeast. We can feed that yeast sugar and then that yeast will create a biofilm and that biofilm we can then, and they haven't been able to actually perfect this, but the idea was that you would extrude the biofilm the way nylon and polyester and fossil carbon material has been extruded and you would make a filament that then you could knit or sew and basically you'd be able to wear a spider silk shirt. Um, that was the vision. And it would, again, it would keep all those families, the 58 million families that are involved in natural fiber production, you know, forget them. Right. <laughs> we, don't, we don't need Siri culture anymore, you know? Anyway, so that whole, you know, that, that eco-modernist vision is, uh, was very compelling to the Obama administration. It was very compelling to Silicon Valley but what it is, is it relies on some things that fundamentally these, these lovers of Synbio, Singularity, University, et cetera, did not understand carbon cycling, nor did they really approach it from the laws of thermodynamics. Because if you have to feed something sugar, where does that come from? So my question is for the spider silk people, it's like you're growing all this sugar in the global south, you're chewing up rainforest land to create a feedstock that you then import to a fermentation tank in the Bay Area that looks very clean. And so all these people are wearing white lab coats and they're making silk and they look so much more dignified and sophisticated than silk growers, you know, in Indonesia wearing flip-flops and sarongs. But boy, you know, it's like that facade of the fermentation tank in the white lab coat is a facade. The, the, the pay structure for that is conventional agriculture going on in the global south and that's what concerned me is that they keep saying we're going to engineer our way out of it we're not going to need sugar in the future and we'll use methane we'll attach our fermentation tanks to fracking sites oh, <laughs> and we'll man. gobble up all that extra methane for you like well i don't really want fracking in the future thank right. you and i don't want you <laughs> using that feedstock and i actually don't really think it's very interesting that you're patenting all of this and making this much money. So on the money side of it, the companies doing this, they're, they're making, I mean, they're the one company that I, I don't know if I 
totally indicted them in the book, but <laughs> I should have. <laughs> they made $200, $200 million in venture capital before producing anything marketable. While, like I said, we already have silk, we already have cotton, we already have wool, and we don't need to feed the sheep GMO sugar. If you do it right, you can, you know, you can holistically manage your animals on a landscape and you actually need very few inputs if you're really doing it right. And yes, there are inputs to agriculture and conventional ag does require a lot of fossil carbon stuff to prop it up. But the agriculture of the future and is the agriculture of the past. It's an agriculture that is not dependent on those inputs. The synthetic biology system, regardless of how far you go down this line, this end game, they need inputs. They need these fermentation tanks. Those are from mined metals. They need room temperature. They need air conditioned and temperate rooms. They need buildings. They need electricity. They need sugar. They need lab techs that continue to engineer these microbes. They need huge infrastructure to produce what they're producing. All the while, we have all these natural materials that are underutilized and are underrepresented in textiles as a whole. And instead of, yeah, investing that $200 million in creating an agricultural system for cotton that doesn't rely on tillage or synthetic chemistry and helps us de defoliate without Roundup, we put $200 million into something to supplant that whole system. And it's, to me, again, it's just a means of Silicon Valley venture capital patenting DNA being able to say, I own this. It's no different than Monsanto making BT cotton. It's just, I'm going to own it. No one else can own it. And it's going to make me a lot of money and further centralize power and wealth in the textile system. To me, it comes from the same mindset as the slave traders. Hmm. The same mindset of Monsanto and the BT cotton. It's the same, I'm going to control life. I'm going to tell life what to do. Life is under my domain, and I am the dictator deciding whether it comes, whether it goes, and what it yields. And I will tell the yeast that it's going to make spider silk by tearing apart its DNA and inserting the DNA I want. And I think it's the mindset that is the most problematic thing under it all. It's colonial, again. Right. Well, I'd like to switch gears for a moment and ask where did you grow up and, and how did textiles become a central part of your life? I grew up just north of San Francisco in an area near the Point Reyes National Seashore, kind of between the Pacific Ocean and where the coastal range kind of stops. Actually, I was frequented an area um, called the Ross Valley growing up, and it's where about five generations of my family on my mom's side have lived um, since the 1890s under Mount Tamalpais. We have a history of being, uh, as a family, gardeners, you know, land, land lovers, um, <laughs> mm -hmm. people on boats, um, you know, just, just everyday people. I mean, it was just a very, you know, a very place-based side of my family that had very normal jobs and lives and nothing fancy. Um, the county that I live in still to this day is that county I live one watershed over, and it's become kind of a you know, an enclave community, unfortunately, in some ways, because back in the day, a biologist and a dairy farmer protected a huge swath of land in our county. So two thirds of our county is open space and publicly accessible. So it's a very, 
and we have a national park. So it's um, an exceptionally beautiful and very accessible place. There's a lot of land in the commons and there's one of the first, the country's first land trusts out here protecting our ag land. So there's many attributes. Um, of course, a lot of, a lot of history of um, racial segregation and a lot of uh, racial terror to Native American communities that is very real here. I, I am still living, like I said, here in this area and mm -hmm. an avid gardener, um, but also have worked up to um, a couple acres of farming and lease land for that. And I farm indigo. Um, that's happening this season again. I grow a Japanese indigo. I grow king marigolds, coreopsis, and I mix that in with food plants and um, natural medicine. And so my farming practice is really about color, food, medicine, and kind of the integration of that and thinking about the underpinnings of how to build soil health. How did you get to the point where you're leading this, this movement to bring sort of regional or local autonomy um, in terms of fashion and textiles? How did that come to be? Uh, it probably with, you know, the, the way that this all came to be was probably an ingredients list that's very long that I could track by some maybe seminal moments. But my great-grandmother was Depression era, and she, due to my mom being a single mom for quite some time, um, and us not having like a home turf or, or like a home, technically a home, I ended up a lot with my great-grandmother. And so she taught me how to crochet, sew, how to mend, how to take care of my clothes, how to garden, how to produce food. And she was uh, also just a very, she wasn't a very erudite or educated woman. I'm the first woman in, on both sides of my mother and father's line to go to college. But she was, you know, that her intelligence was all earth-based. And again, she was third gen, she was my great grandma, but she was third generation on that, in that Ross Valley area. Mm -hmm. So yeah, she brought forth a lot of the information that I think is at the foundation of my understanding of how to be in place and how to connect to landscapes, observe landscapes, and respond to the ecology. If you know you are a gardener, farmer, what are you what's, what are you trying to harmonize with, and how to harmonize? And then I went, uh, you know, I was interested in textiles, but also didn't come from a family with means. So I spent a lot of my days at the Goodwill, and finding like I was always attracted to wool and secondhand protein fibers I was the quality I mean I would find textiles from the 1950s and I just loved that vintage clothing that came out of the 1930s to the 50s and when I was you know back in the 80s going to thrift stores when someone would pass on and their clothes would end up at the Goodwill that those were the decades you would see represented at the Goodwill so I spent a lot of time reconfiguring those clothes and using the sewing skills that my great-grandmother taught me to, to do different things with them so that they would be modified for, for my fit and interest. And then going to college, I ended up living with and working with a Peruvian uh, friend whose family was uh, yeah 100% from Peru. And so she had she showed me for the first time, I know it felt so bizarre as I described that whole history of my childhood, that she took me to a weaving, um, literally a textile that had been woven by someone. And we were looking at it through the glass panel at our arts and crafts center at UC Davis. 
And she said, I'm going to take that weaving class because, you know, my family has roots in Peruvian weaving and I, I really need to you know, tie back into that. And I looked at the textile and it was the first time I understood that a textile was made up of warp and weft threads. I literally was so accustomed to feeling a texture or a print or a color schematic, but I didn't actually understand the difference between a knit and a weave. And I was like, I'm 19 years old and I didn't even know what weaving was. What the heck? So anyway, ended up taking weaving classes, training in weaving digital, even going as far as computerized digital technologies for how to design patterns for looms, working on floor looms, working on computerized looms, and basically got a vocational training at a land-grant university, but also learned a lot about agriculture because I was at an ag school. So that synthesis between learning to become a weaver and blending that love of working to construct a textile with my love of agriculture, I think set me off on the course of that. Yeah, going to Southeast Asia, studying with indigenous weaving communities, trying to understand that relationship between a watershed and a fiber shed and a food shed, trying to understand how we could live, how material culture could actually derive from a place and do so in such a way that keeps that population thriving without having to hit other communities on the head and militarize yourself to extract resources from others. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm looking for how do we create peace? (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, how do textiles connect to peace on earth? How do they connect to right relationship with all living things? I mean, I think these are the fundamental existential questions that I continue to ask myself through the lens of textiles. Well, tell us about your wardrobe challenge year. What is it and what did it teach you? It taught me, the question was, could I dress myself within something called a fiber shed? And what is that? So the idea was I would look for all the fibers I needed within as close proximity to my front door as possible, plus the dyes, um, plus all the people to help me metabolize those materials into garments. So all the labor, dyes, fiber would all come in as tight a network as possible to my front door. So that question was answered through an, at least an 18 month process to start. But I mean, the question keeps, we are still asking ourselves that question 10 years later. But what I did discover is it was easy to find the fiber. I mean, if those who are listening who are an ag, if you have sheep, uh, <laughs> most of the time that wool in so many cases, is not ending up on human skin. It's getting stored in the barn rafters. It's being used as orchard mulch. It's getting ditched, literally thrown in a ditch. I I had so much wool. I just was up to my ears in wool. And cotton, you know, California produces 250 million pounds of cotton every year. We, I found a small classical breeding program run by a woman named Sally Fox up in the Cape Valley. I was able to work with her color-grown cotton that was beautiful, continues to be beautiful. So many varieties of sheep. I mean, Jacob's sheep, Corydale, Romdale, Rambouillet, Merino, Shetland, um, South Downs. Ugh, just the diversity we had and the plethora of material blew my mind. And then I was like, oh, we can grow Japanese indigo here. And Coryopsis grows so well. So all oh, the dye plants do so well here. And so anyway, there's more material than you could ever need. And the labor, I mean, just so many people came out of the woodwork. I did not go to like design houses and ask people who are already professional in that space of textile design to work with me. I worked with grandmas. 
I worked with volunteers. I worked with my mom. I worked with my mom's friends. I mean, it was just, you know, the community. It was not fancy. And people just knit and sewed and did things. And, you know, about 18 pieces came forward um, that I wore for a year. And underwear, bathing suits, socks, everything. And I learned a lot about breed diversity and how that affects the usability of a textile. You know, what do you really want your sock made out of? <laughs> you probably want it actually out of a Corydale versus a Merino. If you really don't want to have to dye your clothes, you should be raising colored sheep. And like the, the colored wool is so beautiful. We don't even need dye. Even though I love natural dyeing, I don't even think we really need it that much. Um, we can grow the cotton, the color we need. We can grow, without genetic engineering, we can grow the wool colors we need. So that was exciting. So you, everything you were wearing during this period was all locally sourced some, and you made it or someone within your fiber shed made it. Is that accurate? Correct. And, and what did you look like during this time? I mean, did, you, did people take notice? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they would yeah. say, Rebecca, that's an interesting look. Or what did they say? They were very polite. Um, but I think I, I knew that I looked different. And um, there, there were a lot of compliments. I mean, really, the people who understood the project were always touching the clothes. Like, so you two things basically happened. One is that to people who didn't know me or didn't understand the challenge, there were second glances and raised eyebrows because the textiles in many cases were very chunky. They, you know, because we didn't have the milling systems to get the gauge of the yarn really fine. So we were hand, I, I hand spun a lot of yarn myself and my hand spinning skills are mediocre. So a lot of the yarn I spun was, you know, like a quarter inch in diameter. And then if you knit that into a sweater, you've got a five pound sweater on your hands. So <laughs> things were like, yeah. they, weighed, they weighed a lot. <laughs> I was, um, and sleeves were very interesting. So I, sleeves were hard. And if you think about the origin of textiles and what people have worn over time and imagine in the middle ages, how sleeves you could see sleeves were physically like attached to the main bodice of a, of a knight's armor or even a linen textile. Like a sleeve is a big deal. And we don't, we take sleeves for granted, but like I did not take sleeves for granted. I didn't have them. And so in, as I started to accumulate pieces that did have them, I was so grateful for sleeves. Um, and then the other thing I think people yeah, so you have to be ready for people to touch you a lot. They really want to know what things feel like. They want to know, is that soft enough? Could I do that? You know, are you wearing wool? Could, could I wear that wool? Um, oh, that's just the color of the sheep. Can I touch that? And so, you know, you really open yourself up to becoming like a walking museum for your place and for your biosphere. Like you're literally a walking representation of the land. And so people are really curious but then again, there were also the times when the clothes were so chunky and unique looking that like I couldn't, I couldn't walk into a lot of locations and feel like the same as other people. So I really had to, not that I, if I'm a type of person who has, you know, I didn't think I was at least a person who wanted to feel that I was fitting in. But when you don't fit in and you really don't fit in, 
Um, cause your clothes are so different and maybe you're at a conference and everyone's at least finely dressed and has, I don't know, plaid shirts and khakis on and you're wearing like a really heavy sweater cause that's all you can make <laughs> and like a skirt cause pants are hard to make. Yeah. It, it, it was awkward. Um, but what I liked about it was that it totally stripped my sense of identity away. Like my sense of identity associated with clothing or my outside appearance got stripped. So my, my association with who I am had to go much deeper, much more quickly. And there's lots of ways you can do that. I mean, I'm sure there's like transcendental meditation, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> testing your muster in extreme sports. I'm sure there's lots of ways you can connect to like your deeper who you are, but um, this was one of those ways. <laughs> Five pound sweater therapy. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you have to find a deeper connection to self because you don't fit in. So, but eventually this experiment turned into something bigger than that. I mean, the, the title of your book is Fiber Shed, but it's not just the title. It's also sort of a movement that you're behind. I'd, I'd, I'd love for you to talk more about that. The idea in our community was to define that strategic geography that would help us define a textile resource base. And immediately it became clear to me that if the world centered itself on what do we do well here, what is the rainfall pattern, the, you know, the geomorphology, what does this land yield easily? What is natural to this land to provide for all the beans that depend on it? And if I, I was so curious about that question. I was so excited that the clothing started to represent the answer to that question. And then I felt like, oh gosh, I mean, back to our indigenous roots here. I mean, communities all over the United States, which is really, you know, a colonized land base at this point, we could all tap into our deeper relationship with our deeper heritage. What is our what's the positionality really here? Are we all Americans? Are we, you know, or are we Welsh and Norwegian and and, uh, West African and Guatemalan? And uh, there's so many deeper stories that, and now we're learning, you know, this idea of whiteness, blackness. It's like, these are very high level kind of divisionary uh, blankets we've given ourselves. But when we root down to like where we really come from and why we left where we left and 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 yet tapping into that deeper indigenous part of us i thought you know that's such a great place for us all to be because we all connect somewhere to to place and if we could really all stand on that soil together wherever those places are that we love wherever we've moved to wherever our community has our, our ancestors moved to like for me it's west marin I love the soil here. If I could stand together with people and produce a regional economy that focuses on what we can yield and we start clothing ourselves with more responsibility and unplugging from the exploitative systems that are injuring people in water and land and earth, and what would that look like? So we invited other communities to, to look at their soil and, and what they're already producing and what are the low-hanging fruit fibers that are already abundant. And communities across the world have have been doing that, especially in the, I guess you call them the Anglophile countries, the countries where colonization, you know, in Australia, um, and then the birthplace of a lot of that colonization, the UK or or Great Britain, um, the United States, we see a lot of fiber shed movements in those countries. 
there's about 40 some odd communities, Canada, you know, looking for what can we do to build a regional economy around the idea of place through the lens of textiles <laughs> and how does that connect to the food and the water. And so the, these um, fiber shed communities look very different as they should, depending on where you go. And they're all looking at different things. Some are doing flax community gardens, like in the Rust Belt. In um, Canada and Salt Spring, they're, they're very focused on their craft and sharing skills together, teaching each other the felting, hand spinning, and really honing in on a very intimate craft movement. You see the Bristol Cloth Project in the UK, where they're literally being included in bigger sustainability conversations at the government level. You know, what is the future of textiles? It's not just a technology, it's also getting back to our roots and this Bristol cloth project, you know, they used all their local wool, local weaver, and they've produced beautiful things. Um, so making your own endemic textiles is commonly what these communities do. They're like, well, let's make our own textile. And Western Massachusetts, they have a beautiful fiber shed where they did the same. They did a beautiful line of textiles all from Western Mass. And there's just so many others. It's, it's like the projects bloom every year. I see um, New York Textile Lab they teach, they go to the farmer's market and teach people um, how to use food waste for dye. They're doing carbon farm planning and making sweaters from Hudson Valley alpaca. And it's, in, it's deeply inspiring to me to watch what other people do when they connect to the land that they call home. It's lovely. <laughs> you know, I was thinking, I mean, clothing at its basis level is about covering up our nakedness. But when you put it in a cultural context, it's just so much more than that, as, as you're describing. But I kind of wonder, as you look across the kind of the American landscape, for example, uh, you know, people wear athleisure everywhere. <laughs> um, and it's like, I, I, I don't, from reading your book, I don't know if there really is a model for like regenerative athleisure. I mean, how do you <laughs> sort of, I, I guess there, there are different imperatives. One is like sort of this land-based ethic that's uh, about soil health. It's about you know fair labor practices. It's about empowering people within a, in a community. But then you have this sort of cultural uh, slash fashion uh, component to it, where it's like people want to wear things that make them look good or make them sort of fit in with a, a group. How does how does how do these cultural um, factors sort of enter into the equation? Well, they're not going anywhere, as far as I can tell. I mean, I think. What you've just pointed to is I could see modifications and, and some, some evolution of, of that happening where people start to understand that their clothes, they have to look at their clothing ingredients list they, for their own health and safety. They need to understand what's in the textile. It isn't just about fitting in or having clothing. Yeah, the athleisure, I can just wear the same thing in all these environments. It's easy. It's flexible, it's cheap. Well, not always cheap in people's minds, but all of our textiles are ex still externalizing costs and not internalizing. So I think, I think the, the, the goal for the work that our, our org is doing right now is to bridge that, is to say, well, here's, here's where, you know, the one-year wardrobe challenge took 19 counties in California. You know, we incorporated the talents, skills, and fiber diversity of 19 counties. California has 54 counties. So as we grow and we look at regional infrastructure, we're starting to look at fiber sheds being nested within fiber sheds. 
and some of how to meet the qualitative and some quantitative price point realities, like to, to meet an athleisure interest. Ironically, we're not, it's not that our fibers that are grown in the West of the United States, there's, there's enough of them, of the fiber quantitatively. And qualitatively, it could turn into athleisure <laughs> if we wanted it to. But we right. would need equipment that allows that. And so our org is focused on what is that equipment? How much does it cost? Where should it be? How many people would it employ? What technical skills would we need to, uh, what workforce development efforts would we need to deploy? And, and while doing that, while trying to meet the demand with the endemic fibers, at the same time, our org is focused on the cultural trends to change that kind of somewhat of those impulse buys and that throwing clothing over your shoulder like a chicken bone, like it's fast food all of that still needs to change. Like we can't, endemic fiber systems cannot meet, should never and are not designed to meet the cultural reality that we've imposed on ourselves with adopting fast fashion. We can't consume at those rates. They're, they're disrespectful rates of consumption to the earth. They're just, you know, it's not appropriate to wear something once and throw it away. And that's what's happening. So there does need to be major modifications to overall consumption rate and mending, visible mending has become a movement. If we can modify those cultural practices, <clears throat> over dyeing your clothes when, you know, there's a stain instead of throwing it away, dipping it in a bath of black walnut, you know, making it a different color, all of that could happen and it, it needs to happen and our org works on that cultural side while we're building up the capacity of endemic fiber systems. And if those eventually will marry each other in my <laughs> North Star vision and right. we'll have cultural modifications, but clothing will be comfortable. Clothing will be beautiful, but it will also be systemically beautiful. And that right now it's not. It's superficially interesting, but it's systemically dangerous. Meaning if you tie it, if you go all the way back to the mines where the cadmium is coming, if you go all the way back to where the nurdles are coming from, from the nylon deep within the lithosphere, if you go all the way back to the perofluorinated carbons that are keeping you, you know, dry, those are, that's not systemic beauty. That's dangerous. And so the clothing needs to be at every point of its materiality representing a harmonious relationship with the laws of the carbon cycle, the laws of thermodynamics, it all has to harmonize. And right now it's not in harmony. So we're, we will get there. <laughs> what, what would people find if they, you know, rifle through your closet and drawers, would they find like ratty old like concert t-shirts or, <laughs> or, 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 or what would they say? Oh, it's hilarious. Um, what, I mean, I, really what I'm asking is kind of what materials would they find there? Because I'm, I'm curious about sort of the list of, of items like you, in the book, you mentioned hemp, you mentioned flax, you mentioned organic cotton. You know, what, what, is, what are the raw materials for a regenerative uh, fiber movement look like? Well, I'm going to my closet right now. And those fibers for me living in North Central California, again, I started with all the fibers that are already here. So I think, again, my answer to what would a regenerative or 
sustainable closet look like? Ideally, it looks different depending on where you live. So I'll just say from my perspective, in coastal Northern California, um, I see a Jacobs wool and Rambouillet coat. Um, so uh, an heirloom livestock breed mixed with uh, a French Merino uh, woven together at my local weaving mill that we helped capitalize, sewn by my friend Dan DeSanto, a sweater shirt made knit, hand knit by my friend Heidi Iverson in Sebastopol made from Napa Valley um, Shetland wool that's naturally gray. I have a hemp apron, so if I'm working out in the garden, um, I have this, it's a long staple hemp. It's, um, it's the old school Eastern European hemp process whereby they take the whole length of the bast fiber from the plant and they spin it and weave it. So it's a heavy hemp. It's absolutely gorgeous. And I think this piece was made by a brand actually called Young Maven. I have a lot of wool coats. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And some of those are made, one is made by the North Face that has, a, um, because of our work, we connected a California rancher with a California headquartered brand, and they made this beautiful raincoat with um, 100% Rambouillet wool from Modoc, California, and it's called the Cali Wool Project. Um, mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. And then I do have, yeah, so the cotton that's in here, I have color-grown cotton from Sally Fox um, that was hand-woven by Adele Stafford. I've got hand knits that are color-grown. And then the pieces that are from outside my community are the flax. I do have European flax here because we haven't scaled our flax projects to be able to make linen pants, but I have some you know, some really nice linen in here because linen in the summer is is just an exquisite textile. I'm wearing linen pants right now um, from a designer in Oakland, California, uh, Aliyah Wanek. And I'm also wearing a shirt made by a designer in Oakland. Uh, her name is, well, her business name is Taylor J. And this is an organic cotton. And then I'm wearing base layers from a company called Rambler's Way, which is um, out of Maine. And they use 100% wool, compostable base layers. Um, Is that the same company uh, that was started by the guy who did Thompson, Maine? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. I wear a yep. lot of Rambler's Way um, next to skin, and it's all compostable. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, oh, it's great. kind of a mix of, like, you know, honoring the company's I, – I think decision, my decisions on textiles are, like, who can I support that's a designer in – you know, an inner city, who's a young upstart designer that is doing all their cutting and sewing themselves or working with a small cut and sew team, you know, in San Francisco, in Oakland and Berkeley, those are you know, only an hour from my house. How can I help these young urban designers who really want to be makers? Um, and they're very talented. They're often not able to afford to work with locally grown textile because the manufacturing systems haven't scaled you know, it's $90 a yard to have your textile hand woven. They can't, they can't afford that. So I support those designers though. They're often, you know, they're looking for the most ethical textile they can. I support them. When Elizabeth Suzanne, when that business was open, she was in Nashville, Tennessee. I supported her. She used a lot of wool from our ranches. Um, the North Face, um, just their Cali wool project. I don't buy any of their synthetics. You know, if I support that Cali Wool project, I'm supporting the ranch 
that whose owners I love and adore. Yeah, so I, I kind of have this diaspora of people that I support, everything from a transnational company who's trying to do the right thing and build a relationship with a ranching family to an upstart design team in Oakland that's not using a textile that maybe is from our area, but I just know that someday we will marry these young, amazing designers with the ranchers. But the magic middle is the manufacturing. I'm curious about the economics of, of fashion. You know, you mentioned earlier, fast fashion is something like a $3 t-shirt, but then at the very opposite end of the spectrum, you have, you know, maybe like that five pound wool sweater that if you bought it off a rack somewhere, it might cost you hundreds of dollars, yeah. if not more. How, how do you scale sort of regenerative practices in the clothing industry so that people don't have to buy their clothes from a, a destructive and unfair industry that exploits labor. But I feel like people may, maybe don't feel like they have a choice. They, 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 own, they wear what they can afford. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I just watched a beautiful documentary last night from the LA garment workers, um, who mostly uh, women who are, were born in Latin America moved to LA and are fighting for minimum wage. In Los Angeles, they're making $5 an hour, sometimes max. (laughs) Um, And I watched them protesting Ross, Dress for Less. So they they got in a bus from Los Angeles and they went up to Dublin, California in the Bay Area and they were out there protesting um, the Ross corporate headquarters saying, you know, you are suppressing our wages. Here, right here in good old progressive California, we're paying people less five dollars and less an hour to sew clothes for Ross Dress for Less. The irony there, that's a really tight-knit example because if you then you go to Ross and who's shopping at Ross? The communities who don't know that their Latin sisters and brothers are sewing those clothes for five dollars an hour who are also suffering under economic repression are forced to shop there. And so who's capitalizing off of that? The corporate headquarters. But the person shopping there and the person making those clothes are both in the same boat in in many cases. And so my, and I know that some people shop at Ross Dress for Less who are not in economic hard times, but they just don't prioritize clothing and they don't value it. So I'd say there's a couple of demographics out there. If you have physically the the capability or financially the capability to not shop at Ross Dress for Less or Target, if you can, if you actually have it in your bank account, I mean, I was making less than poverty wages because I was an educator (laughs) for most of my Mm -hmm. adult life. And I would prioritize clothing and organic vegetables that were grown local. My healthcare, I don't spend a lot on healthcare. I spend money on good clothing and good textiles. And I spend money on living in a place where I can afford to get on trails and take care of my body in nature. Like I, you know, it's, it's, it's often a priorities conversation with most people. Now with those who have no choice because they're making a decision between, you know, canned food and a t-shirt and, and that, and that is very real for a lot of Americans right now because of our wealth disparity problem and our centralization of wealth and power problem, then I would just say we do have to make fundamental changes. But what I'm seeing is 
those garment workers protesting and law SB 1399 is an appropriations right now that would actually allow those garment workers to make minimum wage, that's going to throw Ross dress for less for a loop. I mean, you're not going to, if everyone fights for the right to not be economically suppressed in this world, textiles will not cost $2 anymore for a t-shirt. So how do we transform this? I think we support the right to life and we support the labor movement globally because of, we have to get ourselves out of this. We can't, we, we cannot have these places in the world where people like in Ethiopia are paid $26 a month or you know, chi the Chinese government is greasing the wheels for the International Monetary Fund to put big cut and sew facilities in Ethiopia because the standard of living is going up in China and no one will sew at the price points that fast fashion is dictating. So they're moving those industries to Ethiopia at starvation wages. The future is labor. Like in the, if we can fight for these communities to, to have the, a right to their life and livelihood, then I don't think we will even be looking at those price points anymore. And the future looks, it just looks like we, we look at capitalism and we make modifications to it or we throw it out or whatever it's going to happen. <laughs> but something, yeah. you, you can't have an, a system that's been working off slavery for this long. It doesn't work. You mentioned the, the priorities argument, which is something I've always associated with food and, you know, people uh, talk about, well, if you prioritize food and are willing to spend a little bit more uh, on, in your budget on food, then you can have access to healthier stuff. And, you know, and people point out that, well, you know, people used to spend 30% of their budget on food. Now they spend something like closer to, I think it's like 10 or something. But then you have people who live in food deserts who, even if they do want to prioritize healthier food or fresher food, they don't have access to it. And do you see a similar thing in clothing where people may want to buy higher quality, more ethical garments, but just don't have an opportunity to do that? Or is it different? No, it's true. There's, although it's, the clothing is non-perishable, so you could buy it online. There is yeah. more of the ecological textile available online and it is purchasable and can be transported to you through the mail more easily than I think, the, you know, the perishable food items. So that's a little bit of a difference, but yes, there are, the food desert is more pronounced in the food system than in the textile system. But what I would say about the, the textile, the regenerative textile desert is more that we don't even have the material. Like we don't even have the non-GMO cotton seeds. You know, we, we are stifled at some very deep levels to provide and even get those designers I described in Oakland and Berkeley and San Francisco to even get them a textile that feels like it's got ethics under it. <laughs> we live in a desert even before the, the cut and sew get their hands on it. So the cut and sew community eventually will have access to these more life regenerating textiles when we fix the, the base part of the supply chain. So we need cotton gins that focus on organic cotton. We need non-chemical defoliation. We need non-GMO seed banks. We need wool washing stations that can wash wool and then put the affluent out into constructed wetlands. We need to comb, pin draft, make sliver, spin, knit, and weave. All those parts of the supply chain are overseas or in very small pockets left in the U.S. with big 
diesel truck driving times between them. So we need to regionalize textile hubs. You know, there's the Carolina um, textile district that's still, you know, it's cooperatively managed. Now we have a, um, an article on our blog about the Carolina textile district. I foresee cooperatively managed textile hubs in different parts of the United States, you know, New England, the upper Midwest, the South, another probably hub in the Southeast that complements the Carolina textile district. In the West, we need a textile district, maybe two, one in the Pacific Northwest, maybe in the Southwest. But these hubs could be, you know, it's what used to be there. I'm not saying anything new. California used to have 12 working wool mills that were all vertically integrated, making carriage blankets and hosiery and all the materials you needed for, for life before 1893, when the Trans-Pacific Railway came in and started importing goods that were being produced by ex-Civil War slaves. The textile industry was able to uh, from the southeast undermine California textile production back in like, yeah, by 1893, we'd lost all 12 working mills in California. So what I'm describing with those textile districts could be the way we provide, how we solve the desert issue and re-envision like what we had in the past. I don't want the textile history to just be <laughs> reconstituted from the 1890s. It was very racist and very suppressive. But the idea that it was decentralized back then is what we do need to reconsider and place our mills in places where they actually used to be. It's really not rocket science. It's just like imagine, we, need, we have a deficit in the imaginative capacity, I think, because textiles are just, again, we haven't really been thinking about them, right? So <laughs> it's time to put our brain trust there again. Well, who are the leaders in this movement? I mean, when you think about companies, corporations, individuals, who comes to mind? In Norway, the Ingen Grimstad, uh, Tuna Tobiasen, Kate Fletcher in the UK, there's, you know, in, in Norway, you can get a PhD in like textile science and sociology. <laughs> there's textile researchers also in Denmark, uh, Vipka and uh, I'm just trying to remember, there's a few um, textile researchers in Denmark, um, basically the North Atlantic, I would say, as a region between the UK and Denmark and Norway, really amazing women researchers who have been looking at the cost of consumption, like what it means to consume at this rate and how we cannot fit within the constraints of Earth's biome. Um, the Ecologies of Fashion is a paper that was out by Kate Fletcher and her partner Matilda. It's a really good document. They basically say we need to reduce consumption by half and we need to double our use times of that which we do buy. And then we can all fit on planet Earth and be dressed. <laughs> right. So those, those, those are like think, think tank leaders who I have so much respect for. And those countries allow those people to excel in those areas of analysis. And there aren't a lot of places in the world where that kind of analysis is taking place. Leaders in the space, you know, from the brand side, there's just so many, it would be, I'd feel a little awkward even starting there because there's just so many great small brands that are really ethical and really pushing their edges. We work with Koyuchi, it's actually a betting company here. Um, we have worked with the North Face, 
um, we I, like I said, really respect the work of Elizabeth Suzanne, um, starting to work with Outer Known. We're uh, trying to think. I'm, I'm wearing Outer Known. Oh, really? Right now. Yeah, I like that company. Lovely company, through and through. Really, really good on the production side. Like I said, love we love Rambler's Way um, for, for those material, that, that beautiful wool. Yeah, and there's, there's small brands that just, we have a clothing guide on our website and we have brands listed by region in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole list of them because there's co-ops in Alaska producing beautiful Kiviet fiber hats and gloves. There, you know, there's so many pockets of beauty. And we have um, a co-op here, the NorCal Fibershed Co-op. And there's actually um, a whole, there's like 55 members, farmers, ranchers, and artisans. And they they developed their own e-commerce site with the help of the president of our board, Stephanie Wilkes, and a team of technical folk. And um, they have the fiber shed marketplace. So you can buy direct from farmers now, which is kind of cool. Farm yarn. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah. So I would say the, the leaders are, they're, they're kind of quiet right now in some ways. Like I feel like, um, you know, aggregating all of what's happening in the U.S. is kind of a, an interesting challenge because each each region of the U.S. has its own flavor for for how it's approaching solving for these problems. Again, I'm probably forgetting, but you know, so many amazing projects. All of our affiliate fiber sheds are doing such good work, and some of them are actually producing textile. Well, so you have you know these different pockets of of individuals, companies, uh, farmers people like yourself who were creating this sort of grassroots movement. But what about on a policy level? Are lawmakers even thinking about this issue? Well, it was heartening to hear that this bill to move the garment workers out of piecework and into minimum wage, bill, uh, Senate Bill 1399 in California, good. Um, at the federal level, there was bipartisan support on getting, making sure that we're not, as in the United States, I, I believe, importing Uyghur cotton. So making sure that that those labor abuses in China, um, that we are not financially supporting the pros, the, the products of that abuse. Similar to I think when Obama did something around you know, not importing um, slave produced goods. I think there was a specific federal bill around Uyghur cotton. I need to look into how that went or if that's passed. Where I'd like to see, like in Norway, they have they don't import textile with some of those perofluorinated carbon water repellent chemicals. And that's where I think we could really, we can really go next. It's that the question for me is I live in near the San Francisco Bay. The water from my washing machine ends up in basically getting out to the bay and a whole bunch of other people's dryer lint is blowing out the side of their house all day long and the lint is landing on the earth and during stormwater events that lint is getting washed in mass into our marine ecosystems when you think about now that the analysis on the san francisco bay is that of all the microplastics in the bay 54 percent of those microplastics are microfibers from our textiles plastic (laughs) lint (laughs) It's, right. it's in our delta smelt, it's in our anchovies, it's in our zooplankton, it's moving up the food chain. Ugh. And so I'm thinking, you know, 
we are importing, we are allowing people to import plastic clothing. It's not made here in our region. It's the textiles are imported. At best, they're cut and sewn here. And yes, we're working on the cut and sew labor law, as just mentioned. However, we have no laws protecting our marine ecosystems and our food system from plastic textiles. And so it's like, well, we could take that work that the Norwegians have done on perofluorinated carbons, and we could also say, um, yeah, and no more plastic athleisure. Like if you need a plastic textile because you work for Caltrans and you need to have like rain gear on as you're working on the roads or you're out, you're farming and you have your rain gear, there's rain gear that we don't wash ever. You know, we might squirt it off with a hose, but we don't need to put it in our washing machine. And, you know, I would say there's a certain place where we could have like, you know, rain repellent textile that is used for vocational work, but I don't know why we all have to be wearing plastic to like drop our kids off at school or go to the grocery store. That's the stuff that's ending up in our bodies. And so I just, I love that, that book by Sandra Steinberger. She, she when she was interviewed by, um, oh, it was an in-person interview um, where she said, I'm so tired of the toxic trespass that we allow chemicals to be sold. We allow materials to be sold to individuals who think they are getting to make a like a libertarian independent decision about how they consume but yet their choice to consume in that way is contaminating all of us and so where does the libertarian ethic go when you know when you and she's not a libertarian but she's kind of poking at that ethic that idea of the free consumer <laughs> getting to make choices but then it's like well your choices are actually trespassing on my body and, and and people are also making those choices based on very limited information. They don't. They may not understand all these garments and materials that are being pushed on them are are incredibly harmful, not just to the environment but to human health. Exactly, you're right. <laughs> so so true. There's not enough education on purpose, of course. <laughs> we could have an ingredients list on our clothes. We'll talk about the effect to human health uh, that a lot of these synthetic fibers have. I mean, you mentioned anchovies uh, and that it was moving up the food chain, but this, these materials are, are not something you really want to be wearing. No, the, the textiles, I mean, I just, I, I, there hasn't been a, a lot of research on the permeability between the dermis layer, you know, our skin and, and what we can take in. There's been talk about it, but I haven't seen any peer-reviewed research about you know, what we're technically absorbing through our skin. People have said, oh, you absorb 60% of, you know, your surroundings through your skin. And that might be true. But again, I, I think the, the thing about the dermis layer is that we have, it has no liver. It has no kidneys. Like when you do absorb things through your skin, it's going right into your bloodstream. So unlike food, where you have the ability, your body is pulling toxins out through different organs and storing those, at least in places where they're not distributed all over your body. You pay the cost later on, but immediately you might be slightly protected from it going directly into your bloodstream. I do have concerns and I can't, I can't point to peer-reviewed research that says, you know, this is what's coming into your dermis layer through textiles because there just hasn't been enough research. And when I, fig when I figured out why that research hadn't been done, I was kind of infuriated, but they don't, people are not, there's really no pool of money that civil society, whether it's private or public, there's no pool of money that is funding 
this kind of research on non non consumed materials like there's a few ngos out there who are trying to pull on philanthropy to do research environmental working group i think the green chemistry institute there's a few people who are trying to understand impact of of the chemistry it's very hard to get funding for that research um, most of the funding that exists is in the industry and the industry doesn't fund that research for good reason so we know a lot about the impacts to materials we consume through our mouths and esophagus and stomachs, but we don't have the same cultural will or, or, or slush fund to pay scientists to study what's being absorbed through our skin. But what I will say is that the Germans did a study and they found a, it's called NA4TP. Um, it's a metabolite of acetaminophen um, that's basically an endocrine disruptor. And they found this um, endocrine disruptor in the blood of something like more than 90% of the German population. It's a metabolite of aniline, actually. And aniline is the basis for most synthetic dyes. And they found this metabolite, again, in a majority of the population. It's an endocrine disruptor, which means it has its roots in causing cancer, autoimmune disease, birth defects, you know, learning disabilities, and they found it in most of the German population and they couldn't figure out why because they took its acetum, it's, this metabolite is also found in those who ingest Tylenol. We know Tylenol is an endocrine disruptor. So they took the sample population off of Tylenol and off of all ingested uh, forms of, of whatever, wherever they could be absorbing aniline internally, they took them off of it. And they were still urinating out this metabolite. So the study points to somewhere in the human population, we continue to be exposed to this endocrine disruptor at very high rates that are unsafe. And it's a metabolite of aniline. And they did not point to synthetic dyes <laughs> because they couldn't correlate it, but they're like, hmm, it's in everybody. So, you know, that's, that's, a, that's an issue I think that we need to continue to research is how are these synthetic dyes, which are endocrine disruptors, getting, how are they moving through the biosphere? How are they getting into our bodies? If they are getting into our bodies at certain rates, are those rates high enough to stimulate breast cancer, to stimulate all the changes that, as, that these endocrine disruptors do? You know, if you're um, a young mother and you have a child in utero, and that's a male child. The main issue with these um, endocrine disruptors, particularly the one I just described from aniline, the metabolite of aniline, it um, changes so much of the male attribute of that child. So it changes, they've even diagnosed how it changes male play behavior. It modifies male play behavior. Um, penal size, anogenital distance, all of these mutations to the sex organs occur. And I'm just thinking, oh my gosh, this much of the population we know is getting exposed. We know that it's changing the sexual organs of boys. And it's also putting young girls at risk too, because it's messing with their um, progesterone, estrogen, and testosterone balance. How is this affecting our society? Um, and we're seeing yeah. sperm counts since 1990 and men go down like 30% plus percent, actually, it might even be more than that. Um, that's in the book too. So fertility rates and, and gender, you know, these things are really, really the core of our 
being. And yeah, so I would say synthetic dyes need a hard look at them. <laughs> and it just hasn't been done yet. Not hard enough. Yeah, and, and it's not necessarily even what we're wearing. It's also what we're, the, the couch that we're sitting on, the, the, the carpet that we walk on. These are, these are all fibers as well, maybe beyond the scope of your, of your book, but yes. it's a pretty toxic environment. Yes. And the lint. I mean, we just, I just mentioned all the plastic lint, but um, you know, what happens when you have even a natural fiber that's synthetically dyed and the lint is inhaled, you know, it's in our water supply. You know, the, the natural fibers that are synthetically dyed are also getting into our marine ecosystem. The Estuary Institute found a lot of human origin fiber that wasn't just plastic. Now, again, those cotton and wool fibers will eventually break down. But at the same time, if they're coated with these things, how is that getting into the marine food web? Questions, all questions that I have deep concern over. And if you just look at the wonkiness of how industry works, our laws, our EPA laws, and I write about this in the book, you don't have to, as an industry who wants to put forward a new dye, let's say new dyes are being made all the time. And let's say you have a new color, a new Pantone color, and you're putting it forward. You just have to present the EPA with your own industry paid for data that tells the EPA that it's safe. You don't have a third party that has to test that molecule. The EPA can go through your data and if something looks wonky, they can request more research be done, but it's very rarely done and it's very expensive to ask for it. So the government is not paying for it. So really we're letting the fox guard the chicken coop when it comes to bringing new chemicals, new textile chemistry into our lives. And that needs to change. So I'm hopeful too on a regulatory, in a regulatory space, we will have third parties that analyze this. And when people think, oh, more regulation, it'll slow things down. I talked to Dr. Shauna Swan. I think she was, I think she's at Mount Sinai. And she's always looking at reproductive health. And she was like, you know, this doesn't have to take time, a lot of time. The science and the testing is quite good. We can figure out right away if something is going to have like epigenetic consequences. We can find out right away if it's going to mess with the endocrine system. Like you don't need rocket science here. You can do this quickly and efficiently and cost effectively. And you can protect hundreds of millions of dollars of sinking into healthcare costs by protecting people in a precautionary way. Well, you, you paint a, a pretty overwhelming picture. What would you tell someone who asks, Rebecca, I, I wanna be a conscientious consumer when it comes to clothing? What do they need to look for? What do they need to seek out? What should they avoid? I would recommend looking for things that microbes can eat willingly, <laughs> like a fiber that is 100% natural. So you know, it's legal, legally forced regulation that a brand has to tell you at least the fiber content of your textile. I highly recommend people get 100% natural fiber. It's hard to get sometimes with uh, the bottoms, the, the, the things we wear on the bottom half of our bodies. A lot of people in the industry want to put stretch in there and they're putting spandex in there and things that are plastic that make those textiles really hard to break down. So I'd say do your best to diligently look for something that's 100% natural, meaning uh, it, it comes from a protein fiber like wool, cashmere, angora, mohair. It comes from a cellulosic 
material, like it, you know, ideally it comes from a plant that is recognizably soft, like it comes from a cotton plant or it comes you know, from a, a, a dew-redded flax plant, a hemp plant. Those aren't soft plants, but there are ways of softening them that are very good. I have concerns around people who are telling others that bamboo is an eco-fiber. If you look at how bamboo grows, it makes a wonderful bike frame, a hardwood floor. It is not naturally soft, and to make it soft it takes incredible amounts of toxic chemistry. So just because something started as a plant, imagine that plant in nature. If a t-shirt says 100% bamboo, imagine that bamboo growing out in nature and think to yourself, what would it take to make it this soft? And if you can't answer that question, probably not best to buy it. <laughs> um, look for organic cotton that is fair trade if the cotton is coming from overseas. Look for domestic cotton. Harvest and Mill, Danu Organics, Cosa Arts. Those are three businesses that are working with uh, domestic organic cotton. Uh, and there's probably many, many others lining up. West Texas is one of the bastions of organic cotton in the United States. There are brands that are working with West Texas. It's about 2,000 acres of cotton. A lot of it is rain-fed. And I would say look for a textile that is undyed. They often call it the grige good. Look for a textile that, that really even transparently talks about the lack of finishing agents. Like they're not sprayed with formaldehyde. No, not very few people are spraying with formaldehyde now, but there's no finishing agents. There's no plastic coatings. Look for that. Ask for that. Because a lot of people spray plastic coatings on top of natural fibers to make them more wrinkle-free, more durable. You got to try to ask the brands about that. Yeah, undyed, um, no finishing agents, and then natural fiber. And then I guess the last thing I'd say is if you do need a plastic textile for rain repellency when you're out in the field, you're, you know, it, the farming and ranching and outdoor community, I would just say find the place where that plastic clothing is most essentially needed. Is it like the rain, the lightweight rain jacket? Is it um, just that one pair of rain pants? And try to just keep your wardrobe very minimal around plastic and only for essential need. And um, yeah, we often, I have, I have a few pieces that I'm wearing in the field in the winter and I just don't put them in the washing machine. So I don't contaminate my community with lint from those textiles. So now that we have the right clothes in our closet, taking care of them is a whole other issue. It seems like it's sort of become a lost art. When pants wear out the knees, we just sort of throw them away. Uh, what should we, should we be doing? I would recommend mending where possible and composting if past the point of mending. And there's also, if you don't have time to mend, for those of us who might live near town, if you have a dry cleaner in the community, often those families that run those businesses if you, because I don't do dry cleaning, but they often have a sewing machine set up and are willing to do all kinds of repair work. And so there are some businesses that maybe a lot of us wouldn't walk into typically, or maybe typically, it doesn't matter, but they have those mending services if you don't have time yourself. And then the other thing I would do is the clothing swap. So if it's just an item of clothing that doesn't fit you anymore, but it essentially is still a functioning garment, what we like to do is have people come together, and this is a little 
tricky under COVID. So you might have to save all your clothes until we're able to do gatherings again and try on each other's clothes. <laughs> but um, <laughs> we do recommend people come together with clothing that they feel is still usable and that they work together to share it. So you swap with each other and you have dinner together and you, and I've been to some great clothing swaps and you can stay very well dressed in your community just by cycling clothes between friends. <laughs> and, and what's the proper way to dispose of clothing? I mean, I know since, you know, minimalism has been sort of in vogue, Marie Kondo talks about only keep things that spark joy. And as a result, thrift stores are overwhelmed. Uh, Salvation Army is overwhelmed with these mountains of clothing and they can't really do anything with them. People are getting rid of their, their old garments. Like, what do, we, what do we do with that? I don't know if this is going to maintain. I know in California, there's some very tight margin businesses that, that make rags. And the rag trade is a great example of what we could be doing at our homes so like I've heard about these two, the two rag trade groups, they, they use our natural fiber textiles and they can make rags for the janitorial sector. So there's a small percentage right now of people still carrying out these old school businesses of, of collecting clothes that cannot be cycled through Goodwill and turning them into rags and then using them as cleaning tools. That, that group though is also overwhelmed. <laughs> in many cases right. and the margins are very low so there are very few of them that are still in business and i don't know i just don't know how long they can i mean they're very they're amazing old kind of traditional families that had started these businesses back in the day i just don't know if their kids are going to take them forward because i know some of them and i'm like oh god we're going to lose the rag trade <laughs> um so how could you reinstitute the rag trade in your home you could cut your textiles up into smaller pieces and use them to clean your floors, to dust your house. You could also cut up your textiles and leave them in squares and use them as patches for, for clothing items that need a patch. So I call them like patch jars. So I take clothing that might have too many holes in a certain part of it and cut up the usable parts and color code my patches. So all the blue patches are in one jar, all the orange patches are in another. So when a clothing item that is blue needs mending, I have this pre-selected amount of squares that I go to and I stitch over the hole. And there's a beautiful tradition in Japan, um, sashiko mending. And there's many books on this. If people looked up sashiko mending or mending culture, great ways to learn how to repair your clothes that actually make them more beautiful after they're repaired. <laughs> well, what about properly washing clothes? Um, a lot of laundry detergents are potentially harmful. Um, how should people, people be doing it? Well, if they can, especially if it's a natural fiber, it's common that the, there's, especially with wool, I've noticed, they don't absorb the, the microbial impact that creates body odor, lingering smell in textile. So some clothes, especially wool, like I said, it's very good at being antimicrobial, um, much more than cotton. It doesn't, they don't, you don't need to wash very often if, you're, if your clothing is, like I said, it's very close to how its natural state was. And that means you could, in the case of wool, you can use UV light. I put my wool clothes out in the sunlight to kill bacteria. And um, that seems to be plenty good in, in many cases. And when I do wash, I just use cold water and I use 
I'm really careful about using a soap that's gray water quality. Kind of, I use a utilitarian soap that works for my whole household and it works for the dishes, it works for the clothing and it, it's gray water safe. Some people have been using soap nuts, just like not even buying a pre-made soap, but buying soap. I've seen these beautiful soap nuts. They were gifted to me by a friend from India and those work really well. <laughs> They're just the nuts from, I don't know, we don't have the tree here, but that, you know, using as clean and simple a soap as possible because mainstream detergents have phthalates in them. And I didn't recognize that um, until, but I don't know if you've ever been outdoors I wrote about this because I have this process that goes on a lot and you smell people and it's not that you don't smell their body odor. You smell their laundry detergent. Right. That is a plastic tally. That's a, 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 a basically a molecule that has stuck to their clothes through a plasticizer. And so you are smelling a synthetic fragrance that is an endocrine disruptor stuck to their clothes and is then aerating out to you and you're inhaling it. <laughs> so, that's not so good. And and all just because we don't want people to think we smell funky, basically. Yeah, we're trying to cover it up, but it's like a very toxic way to do that. Yeah. Well, what are some soaps or, that you would recommend that are easy to find? I've used a lot of Dr. Bronner's soaps um, in the household. I've used them when I in the one-year wardrobe challenge. I used those because I washed all my clothes in my bathtub and I just gently walked on my clothes with like a couple inches of water because my clothes were hand-knit and I, they couldn't go into a washing machine. So <laughs> there was that. There's that strategy. If you want to walk, walk on your clothes <laughs> in the bathtub with a little Bronner soap. Let's see. Oasis. Um, bio compatible dishwash and all-purpose cleaner is what our household's using currently. Um, there's probably even more eco ways of making your own soap. I don't know. I had a soap recipe in the, in the book. I don't know if the editor took it out. <laughs> but we, we do have in our household just a need for a gray water soap, but I just think it's a great thing to have in all households. It means whatever's coming out the back end of your washing machine is pretty well safe, um, maybe with a little constructed wetland or a little mulch pile that that water is not going to toxically affect your garden. <laughs> so yeah. I, I like the gray water soap. Well, what's next for the fiber shed movement? What are you, what are you hoping to accomplish? What is your hope for a soil to soil clothing model? My hope for the future is a fairly imminent move to get manufacturing back in the West. And that's cause that's, you know, my area where I want to support cause I'm living here <laughs> and I want to see a wool washing station with a constructed wetland. I want to see an organic cotton seed bank. I want to see the reinvigoration of flax grown in here in the West as a rain fed winter crop. I'd like to see, at least in our part of California, in Oregon, it can be a summer crop. They get enough water for that. And I'd like to see a long line flax processing system in the Pacific Northwest so we can make linen textiles in their full integrity. I'm very interested in the exploration of hemp in rotation with wheat and what that cycle and crop rotation could look like and how we could maybe degum hemp 
um, like one of the, actually one of the very, I have to say positive technologists we've worked with or have a relationship with at a company called AgriLoop where they're using the plant's own chemistry to soften the hemp. Then we could blend it and we could, I think the future is like beautiful blends where you're putting different, the different qualities of the different fibers. You're looking to get a textile that has the attributes of, you know, the antimicrobial properties of wool, but the strength of hemp and maybe some of the softness of cotton. And you bring together those bast fibers and you mix that with the proteins and then you have the short staple cotton. And you see about actually really advancing new blending technologies as ancient cultures used to do. Uh, Lindsay Woolsey, you know, flax and wool, hemp and wool. Those are all interesting explorations that we just haven't done in so long. And I'm interested in seeing spinning, larger scale spinning in the West so that we can bring the prices down and we could have athleisure, hemp wool athleisure. <laughs> yeah, hemp wool athleisure, there's the future. I, I don't think, um, you know, that those are my kind of economic development slash re-envisioning material culture vision parts of the future. But I think the other part of the future that I'd like to see happen in the fiber shed movement is the cultural side where we actually kind of fall in love with our clothes. They're not just for utility, but we, we view them as part of our lives in very core ways. Like there's a kind of sentience to them the way um, if you're a carpenter and you've built your own home, there's a kind of sentience to every corner. There's a kind of life force. I think that that when I've spent time with indigenous communities who grow the dye, grow the fiber, hand spin, backstrap weave, make the clothing, wear the clothing, their children wear the clothing. The clothing is treated differently. It's treated like a friend and respected, respected for its service. And I think that is the, the future I'd like to see is where we understand material culture as having a sentience and being respected as a friend and something that serves us and that we have a kind of a reciprocity to be grateful to that textile and what does that mean for how we treat it? It's different. It's a different future. But I think that's the direction I'd like to see us go. <laughs> Rebecca, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. There you have it. Thanks to Rebecca for joining us. You can find her book for sale at acresusa.com, chelseagreen.com, or anywhere books are sold. And thank you for listening to another episode of Tractor Time, brought to you by Acres USA. Subscribe to our channel on YouTube, iTunes, or anywhere podcasts are available. Also find us on acresusa.com, ecofarmingdaily.com, and don't forget to subscribe to our monthly magazine. Thanks for listening and have a great week.